Hello, friends. Welcome to Nexus, a smart buildings technology podcast for smart humans. I'm your host, James Dice. If we haven't met before, I write a weekly newsletter on this same topic. It's also called Nexus. Each week, I share what I've learned, my opinions, and what I'm excited about in the quickly evolving world of intelligent buildings. Readers have called Nexus the best way to stay up to date on the future of this industry without all the marketing fluff. You can check it out and subscribe at nexus.substack.com or click the link in the show notes. Since starting the Nexus newsletter, many of you have reached out to me wanting to talk shop, and we have. After a few weeks of those wonderful conversations, I realized I needed to record and share them with our growing community. So here we are. The Nexus podcast is born. This is our chance to explore and learn with the brightest in our industry together. One more quick note before we get to this week's episode. I'm a researcher at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, otherwise known as NREL. All opinions expressed on this podcast belong solely to me or the guest. No resources from NREL are used to support Nexus. NREL does not endorse or support any aspect of Nexus. Let's dive in then. Episode 5 is a conversation with Troy Harvey, CEO of autonomous building startup Passive Logic. Troy taught me a ton this episode. We talk about how the hell we got here to this point where building technology is 20 to 30 years behind the tech we're carrying around in our pockets. We talk about the limitations of modern building automation systems and what it means for a building to be fully autonomous, why that's needed, and how passive logic is doing it. We talk about what full autonomy means for all the service providers in our industry. Oh, and digital twins, deep digital twins. This episode of the podcast is directly funded by listeners like you who have joined the Nexus Pro membership community. You can find info on how to join and support the podcast at nexus.substack.com. You'll also find the show notes, which has links to Passive Logic's website and Troy's LinkedIn page. Finally, just a heads up that our Zoom call had some minor connection issues, so please do forgive us on the one or two words that are hard to make out. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast Episode 5 with Troy Harvey. All right. Hello, Troy. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks, James, for having me. Yeah. Could you go ahead and um, introduce yourself and your company to us? Yeah. So I am the CEO of Passive Logic, and Passive Logic is the first fully autonomous platform for buildings in this building market. So we're in large part doing what when you take what you think of an autonomous vehicle you think about the brain in the autonomous vehicle that knows how to drive you take the brain out of the vehicle and teach it about buildings and of driving and have that that's uh that autonomous platform enable us to manage and automate in as well as you know this whole life cycle of the things that we do in buildings both getting them up and going in the first place operating them and making them manage them after the fact Great, great. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to dive into some more details. I thought I'd start with a, a story a little bit. So uh, I'm what, what you would call, as far as my personal technology, a late adopter. So up until Sunday, I had an iPhone 6. <laughs> um, okay. And I just, got a new, I just got a new iPhone. I went ahead and got the newest one, iPhone 11. And the process for setting it up was a crazy jump in technology for me. So the process is basically turn on the new iPhone, set it next to the old iPhone, and then wait 10 minutes, and literally everything was set up. Every app was downloaded, every login was set up, all the settings were done. And what I've been thinking about since then was how crazy things have evolved on the personal side of our lives when it comes to technology, and then how far behind that buildings are. So I was wondering your perspective on how we got here to this point where building technology is 20 to 30 years behind the stuff we're right. carrying around in our phones. I think there's multiple factors and it's a really interesting thing to bring up the iPhone experience because, you know, just to, to remind everybody, this is only 10 years old. And in the first four years of iPhone, we outsold or Apple outsold all 40 years of com personal computing. So why is that? You know, the Windows and Macs at the end of the 90s, they seemed, you know, pr pretty easy to use. Where I've installed cards in the back or where I'm going to put things together. But there was this level of integration that happened with 
is starting at the iPhone that you could just buy it. Like you said, you buy it, you pull it out of the box and it's just ready to go. Like everything you need is right there. So that's now this personal experience that we've all consumed. And one thing that's interesting, and I think this is important to know, we'll talk about a part of technology culture that is being somewhat dispensed with that the buildings still belong to, which is the thing about the iPhone that's fascinating or an iPad is that both you as an expert user can use it expertly and you can see a two-year-old interact with an iPad at the same time, right? And so this is a really interesting phenomenon. How do we make everybody more expert at whatever level they are at? And we, we call that progressive disclosure, right? So the iPad or the iPhone, you know, you can simply start swiping around and click on icons instantaneously without anybody giving you instructions. At the same time, as you get into a more sophisticated application, you build up your expertise within it. So in these commercial industrial worlds like building automation, we're pre this revolution. Frankly, we're pre the desktop revolution as a person who who was a, a, a successful entrepreneur in the building prop tech space said to me after he graduated with his computer science degree, he's like, goes into his first building and like goes in the basement, you know, in the back closet where all this gnarly stuff is sitting. He's like, oh my gosh, it's like basically a 1970s mainframe running this <laughs> building, right? And then it just blew yeah. his mind. And and so part of that is is several forces. There's a guild mentality that has tended to keep technology back. This happens in computer programming all the time, right? You know, talk to your deep Linux dude who just loves like his most, you know, the, the most awkward way to do things because it, it like produces a sense of specialness, right? Like if you know how to wield like four letter commands, that's like nobody else even understands what you're talking about. There's like a sense of preservation. This is part of it, but as time rolls on, and people in that world have this iPhone experience in their personal lives, that starts to get less and less attractive to like maintain your guild as you have a personal life that feels more automated. We're automation guys. We should be automating our own world and yet we're still doing it this super low level way. But I think there's two other bigger forces that are really the cause here. One is it's a effect of disruption, the cycle of disruption that is true in all technology that the big four players in this marketplace, they emerged in the 1800s, right? Like their big innovation was mercury switch thermostats. <laughs> and that's like a lot of industries. Look at Tesla today versus the car companies. Those are hundred year old companies with a hundred year old mindset with a hundred year old trajectory. And they just got disrupted by some guy in Silicon Valley. That everybody thought was crazy for a second. You know, maybe he is a little crazy, but but <laughs> you know, it, the, the, the end result, like, is they didn't see what was coming. And in the last few years, just literally two or three years, they've gotten to this point of existential crisis. Right? That they they no longer know if they don't put together these technologies or license it or buy it from somewhere else that they will even be in business in years. So I think that's a bigger arc that has left us to where we are today and behind that is why don't companies self-disrupt and i think in this market what's very interesting if you look at the big four is most of them operate technical services commissioning installation they're competing with their customers right and in a way those parts of their business which turn out to be actually more profitable than their product sales are preserving and want to preserve the complexity of product, otherwise it would discount their operations, right? And while if they thought differently, they would say, well, in five years, I could make a much bigger market by democratizing this technology. And then there would be 10 times more buildings using it. In the meantime, you would end up in a bind where you would be making less money in order to make more money. And that's a no-go if you're the CEO of one of these companies. So they're not in a position to self-disrupt. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating so the main four players in our industry are the ones that for for a long time have created the technologies that our buildings are using but what you're saying is their business models are also heavily dependent on the service side of things and therefore yeah if you look at revenue splits um yeah. the majority of those businesses actually make far more from their services side than they do from their hardware side 
So we can go ahead and look in, a, in an analog. I, uh, the, the clear analog in the tech industry is Novell. Now, I don't know if people remember Novell, but in the 80s and early 90s, they were one of the biggest tech companies. It's like IBM, Apple, Microsoft, Novell, and Sun. Those were the five bigs. And Novell invented what was like all the networking infrastructure, and that was complicated in the 80s. And so what you do, you started a services division and an education division and training and certification. Boy, it sounds a lot like if you go do BMS today, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and you would have to go through all these hoops before you could be a certified Novell installer. And, and Novell became so dependent on the services side that they didn't see the future. And so at the beginning of the 1990s, there were bulletin boards all across America, you know, along the highways, get yourself Novell certified right next to Microsoft certified. And by the end of the 1990s, they were out of business effectively because laptops just had Wi-Fi and uh, even at built in, right? And it just bypassed the whole thing. Wow. So the guys that are basically building the BAS, they're dependent on it being a complicated thing that they then have to sell services to make it work. And therefore, making it easy is directly contradictory to their current financial results. Right. And, and just talk to anybody who's an integrator or a distributor at this time of year. They're having to pay their big fees to those um, big four to keep those certifications up. And it's an expensive process. And you have to go through all these hoops, not before you can even install it, but before anybody will even give you a price for the product. Imagine that with your iPhone. It's like, well, go through three weeks of iPhone training, and then we'll tell you what it costs. And only <laughs> after that will we even like consider selling it to you, right? Go, wow. go democratize that market, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. Well, thank you for that history. That is enlightening. So I, I want to kind of shift towards what you guys have done and what you guys are doing. So when I wrote my last newsletter on Passive Logic, I said you guys are thinking zero to one. And what I meant by that is that you're just like starting, you're erasing that whole process that we just talked about and basically starting with a blank sheet of paper. Will you fill us in on why you guys decided to do that? Yeah, so we started with the goal of full autonomy. Now, it's worth stepping back and saying why, you know, <laughs> and, and the glib answer is, well, in every controlled infrastructural market, full autonomy is just the endpoint. That's where everything will be. And we know the technology exists, so why not shoot with that as the goal? But when you looked at the needs, what were the challenges in the market? Where were buildings falling down? And I started as an energy guy. You know, I think a lot of us uh, come from that point of view into the market. Yeah. And it was a winding back from energy. Hey, we want all buildings to save energy. Because at the end of the day, when you do the math, buildings are 41% of the nation's energy. The DOE has done a study, and we've been able to show that it's true, that just through optimal control and optimal commissioning, on average for the US building portfolio, you could save 40% of the energy, right? That's not changing any infrastructure. That's not putting in better, more efficient, you know, uh, chiller plants. That's just controlling what we got and optimizing it better, 40%. So if you add those things up, 100% of buildings have control, 41% of our portfolio of energy is buildings. And if you could save 40% across the board. That is the single largest energy savings opportunity in the marketplace. But on the other hand, nobody really cares about energy in the marketplace, right? That is a terrible thing to try to sell on. <laughs> yeah. Because maybe five, 10% of the market cares, right? Right. And so what we saw though was these are energy, energy efficiency, optimality. Well, they're these like concomitant issues. They're like intertwined with the same things that are causing installers to pull their hair out and, and buildings to run poorly and the owners con up the maintenance management company and screaming at them. It's all about how do you make a building just work well? And we looked back at this and said, well, just like any autonomous system, right? If you start with a vehicle, the level of autonomy, and this is something that, you know, maybe later we'll show a, a slide about level of autonomy. I think it's important for us as an industry 
to get our head around how smart is smart so that we know what we're talking about. So level zero autonomy is where this industry lives today. That's manual control, that's set points, thermostatics and PIDs. That's the same thing as cruise control, right? In your car, you set your car to 60 miles an hour, you set your building to 72 degrees. It's the exact same concept. Well, you can't say, well, I've got cruise control and I'm gonna build a whole autonomous vehicle out of cruise control. Like that, that's gonna take you down all kinds of wrong paths and you're gonna put band-aids on top of band-aids and like remove things and add things and try to fix things. And you're gonna end up with the biggest, craziest Rube Goldberg machine. And that's what we're doing in buildings today is over time, we started with those big four, Bitty Mercury switch thermostats, like cool idea, right? Like 1850s, 1860s. And then Honeywell had this breakthrough idea of like uh, the PID control what they ripped off from the Navy to stabilize ship's rudders. And, and what was interesting is that Navy, Naval engineer, he's like, hey, PID is not meant for generalized control. And Honeywell went and turned it into generalized control. Well, like you can't blame them. They had pneumatics to work with. And it's like PID could fit a pneumatic model. But here we are literally 90, 100 years later, still building one building block on another of PID, which is basically cruise control, right? And, and, and you're just not only not going to get there, but you're just going to make it worse and worse and worse and more complicated the more things you layer on top trying to get this whole thing to work together. So if you're like, okay, we need to start over if we have any hope of getting to level two, three, four, or certainly level five full autonomy in buildings, and you have to start with a different assumption. You have to start with the notion that a control system needs to understand buildings if it's ever going to optimize and control those buildings in real time. And this is what you have in autonomous vehicles, right? You, as a vehicle, you need to understand the physics of your vehicle and the physics of the other vehicles if you're going to keep two vehicles from colliding on a road. When a building, same thing is true. And I think what's interesting to me is when I have conversations with people outside the industry who, who are maybe the owner of a building, they're shocked to learn that their million dollar BMS system knows nothing about buildings. Like it's just, it's just kind of a blank platform, right? To write sequence. Right. So you have to start from scratch. Otherwise uh, you'll end up like the industry is today, which is this like compendium of like point solutions tied together with bailing wire. Totally. All right, so I want to talk about then, okay, what you've basically done to start it with a blank sheet of paper. And then what I think you've done is based on the little I know so far is you said what's possible with the latest technology, right? So I have kind of three things in my mind. So it seems like you guys have been super innovative on hardware, software, and then what that enables is the autonomy piece. And so I'll let you take that in whatever order you'd like, but what can we do with this blank sheet of paper, basically? Right, so first you may need to make an autonomous engine. You need to make an engine that understands buildings, understands what they are, understands the thermodynamics of buildings, understands equipment, understands systems and subsystems and how they interact and how we as people interact in the building. Because at the end of the day, architecture and buildings that's the goal, right? The goal is to make people happier and comfortable and, and, and modulate around our needs. Right. So once you have that, that's cool. And there's a lot of geeky technology we could talk about. We could talk about deep physics and heterogeneous neural nets and some of these things that are these big innovations, not just in buildings that are that the past logic engineers have built, but really in just the space and AI in general, like moving what is naive neural nets towards these very like uh, sophisticated generalized computing environments that can do physics not just like you know train neurons but but this cool and geeky is all that is it doesn't mean anything unless you translate it into something that the consumer cares about which is back to your iphone you know what i think about the iphone is it's this software engine of all these components wrapped in a candy shell of hardware and that candy shell hardware becomes the way that you interact with it as a device. And there's a lot of innovations there that we can build on top of. So like I said, there's a combination of things that we can just straight up steal from the current technology and then mm -hmm. things that we have to bring that are new for buildings. And your iPhone again, that iPhone 11 is an example of what's happening at mobile, happening at the edge. It is literally faster. I've benchmarked it. I've run our simulators right in it. 
is literally faster than my i9 laptop, right? <laughs> that, that is an Amazon Edge Blade server in your pocket. And that change, that shift from cloud to edge is going to be powering a whole wide range of op opportunities and applications in all sorts of industries over the next decade. And so while a lot of people are still talking cloud, the pendulum's actually swung back to edge. And so utilizing that, that power, that capability at the edge. And it's not just CPUs, it's GPUs and what are called TPUs or neural processing units. So this is a new, new type of silicon that enable very fast um, computing at the edge. So that's one component. Another component that you steal is steal like modern user experience, right? So that experience you have on your iPad or iPhone, translating that to building automation that is that layer between you and the AI, you know? So you don't have to know that it's AI. You don't need to know that there's machine learning. You don't have to be a programmer at all. You just need a rich user experience that follows the workflow that you experience as an end user. And then, you know, finally, solving the core problems that, that you're driving in buildings, right? You need optimality, not only in trying to get a building up and going so people aren't yelling at you, but making that building work continuously and then making it like tell you what it's doing after the fact. And so that needs some new technology pieces that needed, how do we take autonomous vehicle technology and, and translate to buildings one of the big differentiators that's really important to understand is what i would say is the input and output problem autonomous vehicles have a really big input problem they have to solve machine vision in a very chaotic environment and we in buildings don't have that which is lucky for us so that makes it very tangible and very viable right now with you know Build our with passive technology achieving level five economy now, where you know vehicles are you know experimentally in that space, but really delivering product around level three right now, and that's a big challenge. But buildings, we have another problem. We have an output problem, and this is where these really diverge. So, in a vehicle, if I'm Tesla or Aurora or Uber building an autonomous platform, everybody gets the same platform, right? The outputs are pretty simple. It's like turn left, turn right, stop, go faster, slower. All right. That's the same in California and Colorado and Japan and France, right? But in buildings, and this is the really crucial thing is buildings, every building's unique. Every building has a different architecture. Every building has a different system topology. It has some crazy intersection between you know air systems and hydronic systems and brf systems and you know all these different components that we're trying to engage with energy systems lighting systems you know ventilation systems so that needs something different and it needs a system that can understand buildings as a whole but it also needs a way to engage with the user to have you describe what does that building look like so that it can build a custom autonomous system for you totally and that's where the concept of deep digital twin comes in. Yeah, because you need a way for a user to describe their building so that then the system can control it based on that description. So you can think of it as, you know, control by contract as opposed to this idea that we use today with this procedural control. You know, if this do this, if this do this. This is more of a contract that you're saying this is the shape of things. Now do the best most optimal thing at any given moment. Right, right. So we're doing away with, you know, uh, standard and static control sequences. And it's kind of just figuring it out as it goes. Is that how I understand it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing for people to get their head around this is first you have to look at a flaw in the procedural solution. So the sequence approach. So let's talk about the ways that people think about making today's systems more optimal. You come up with sequences, right? And these are your best ideas for what is the sequence of operations at the time that you're commissioning the system. Then you tweak and tune those sequences. You know, you adjust the parameters. Now this is a hard task in and of itself. And so there's a few different companies out there like, well, no, we'll, we'll tweak and tune those sequences for you with, a little thin machine learning um, that will adjust it over time. But even with that, you're never going to accomplish all the other things that are wrong with that approach 
starting with the sequence themselves. Like there is no one sequence that governs the building for every and all time. That's a dynamic process. The right sequence is different at any given moment in the building's life. So the idea of starting with a static sequence and then saying, well, I'm going to optimize that with whatever technology on top is it's kind of um, not even half baked, right? It's like partially baked. And then you're still leaving out this notion of, well, like there's all this optimization within the building that the system can't understand. Going back to that million dollar system, shocking again, that million dollar system with a thousand zones doesn't understand how two zones in that building even interact. And so you have to know all of these things in order to coordinate the control that that like whole building control all at once. Right, right. Cool. So I think there's a lot to dig into on hardware and software. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize and put links to the control trends demos that you did. So you did some great screen shares, great software demo. I'm going to link to all of that for everyone so that anyone that wants to dig deeper also put the levels of autonomy together in the show notes as well. What I'd like to dig into is everything you just described, Troy, what it kind of exposes as far as the things we're doing right now in buildings that are obsolete if this new paradigm takes shape. So kind of as I walk you through these different things, I want you to tell us what you see that like the new version is. So let's start with energy modeling. So it sounds like you started as an energy modeler early in my career. I started as an energy modeler where you spend, you know, weeks building this 3d model of the building. (laughs) You'd press go basically, and you'd wait up to an hour for it to run all these different runs of the model. And then at the end, it, it wouldn't be anywhere near the utility bills. It wouldn't be anywhere near reality. And then you'd basically start all over again. So (laughs) what is the new version of that with this new paradigm? Yeah, so the new version of that, and I love that process that you just described, because that's how the world works if you're an energy modeler. And it takes a lot of expertise to drive, right? Because it's all offline. And so it's all like your expertise to trying to get that model to maintain accuracy. But it turns out if you put that model right into the control system and you make the model simple to install, but so you're not you're not spending a lot of detail effort on getting all of the parameters of that model perfect. And you just ask people for high level stuff, like, you know, what does the floor plan look like? Then you plug that model right into the building with all the sensors, you basically are regressing that model right in place, right in the building, right at the edge. And that model is not only forming the basis of how you make your control decisions, but it can also inform us about our energy impact and energy engineering on a building. So we're actually in conversation with a couple of ESCOs where we're discussing, you know, adding a couple of features to Passive Logic that would enable them to just basically plug in Passive Logic in a non-controlled mode, have it regress the building, they come back in a month, and they not only have a regressed accurate model of the building, but then the automatic deltas of if I had controlled this, this is what the energy savings would have been that gives you performance guarantees that you can put into contracts. So that sort of changes the paradigm there about how do we use it as an engineering tool. Cool. Okay. And I think what we'll do is instead of digging into each one individually, we'll go kind of rapid fire. And then if we want to circle back on anything in detail, we'll do that. So how about the building automation system design and installation process? Yeah. And I think this is related to some things you asked a moment ago. So I'm going to actually maybe switch to screen. Uh, you asked about this. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's just uh, kind of go through if, if you can see this. Yep. Yep. And anyone who's only on audio right now, we'll kind of talk through it. So, and we'll also share the video afterwards. So once you have a platform that understands buildings, it becomes really important to translate that in terms of our experience as the guys who are doing the work on the ground, because in the end, that's really the customer here, right? It's not the building owner. It's not the occupant. It's the guy who's going to buy the product and install this and make it go. So when we took that into consideration of how does that process work, right? Well, we go through a design build approach and we need to be able to connect the dots between what is the intent of the building and was it installed correctly. So first is putting a screen right on that controller, making it all software defined IO. 
so that the IO can then check that all your wiring is done correctly and that it meets the definition of the components you connected to it. So if you're connected to a thermistor or a pump or a chiller plant, that it's able to engage with those things as you drew them and make sure that it's working as a system as it was designed. And so changing that workflow, and we can get a moment into that workflow, but I'll just kind of go through a sequence of what we see here as the value here is you're providing a single edge solution that's replacing a catalog of parts right now. You can have one controller that's doing all the jobs. It's giving you that real-time step-by-step install. It's giving the self-guided wiring where it's testing that wiring and leaving it in place for the rest of us the autonomous control platform. So that's our view of the marketplace. Satisfy the installer, leave in place an autonomous platform that the rest of us can plug in services to. From their point of view, it's a matter of like, how do we pre-integrate these different components into one package that today, you know, we, we call ourselves integrators and that's because that's where all the work is. Now back to your iPhone, one of the things that's really interesting, there's a lot of things you could say about how the iPhone changed the marketplace. But a simple one is to say, it was just pre-integrated, right? You no longer had to put together your computer and put together the software and get it up and going. You just literally buy it and it just works, right? And that's how building automation should be. And so that's what we focused on here, putting everything you need in one control. But then more importantly, what does this new platform enable? Control autopilot, universal protocol translation, automated point mapping, automated commissioning, human comfort-based control, right? Not just air temperature control. And you put that into a box that represents, you know, how we all work that's self-contained. So this is not cloud dependent. You plug it in, it goes, and it's its own control system, just like it is today, because we're just not going to convince our industry to be cloud tethered. Even if we could, it's not resilient enough to run things from the cloud. And I think that's an important thing for everybody to understand. Why autonomous systems? Well, by nature, they can't be driven from the cloud resiliently enough, even in the best of circumstances, even if you're at Microsoft's headquarters. And then you make that a scalable model, right? So it's a question of, do you have one controller or three or five or 10 or 100 or 500? And that's how passive logic works is they're all software defined boxes. There's no one quote unquote Jace or one master. They all can master, they all carry a copy of the database and they all work together to solve the overall building's problem. So that's from a point of view of the hardware. Like, how do you make the hardware actually act the way we work? But then how do you make the workflow represent what we need as an industry to not just automate, you know, automation, which is one goal, but to automate this workflow that we all have. And so you start with that control by definition with this platform that gives you this ability to make your own custom autonomous platform for your building. And then instead of this, programming we're doing today we're replacing that with drawings well you're going to have to make the drawings anyway so to tell the guys what they're doing out in the field so we've gotten a two for one and we're doing it instead of weeks minutes maybe hours maybe a day at most right but you you have this 90 percent savings in time right up front once you've done the drawing of the building and the systems it actually says well i know how to design a control system for you would you like me to do that and it will design its own control system point map it all and then gives you this, what you see is what you get, you know, wiring interface that gives you the live interaction. And again, this is replacing what has been, you know, a lot of days or weeks of system design, IT, and then going out to the marketplace, working with those, those endpoint distributors of like, how do I acquire all this stuff? The next piece is working with utility companies to actually connect up the incentive marketplace. Once you have a description you're building in your systems, well, it can connect you up to that incentive marketplace where utilities today are feeling like people aren't making use of the incentives that are there. And this is unfortunate. That's their whole job is to incentivize. Um, that guided wiring and automatic commissioning, again, is another point of savings. Right now, we're spending a lot of time um, doing the manual commissioning and it's very error prone. One guy can switch two wires and you know, you're going to have a problem that may take an hour, may take a day, maybe take years to figure out where that wire went wrong in the whole building. So guiding that whole process, again, saving us from those headaches. And we're always the last guys out of the building. So everything's going to be blamed on us, whether or not it's our fault. But, you know, in the end, 
it is a little bit our fault because our tools just aren't capable of doing what the users expect. And this may be as big as Pathologic itself, but when we talk about the digital twins and digital twin interface, one of the things that it enables is all of these cloud providers of services to then connect the buildings in a one-click way, just like you experience with your iPhone. And today, that is a minimum $50,000 integration cost just to the simplest analytics app, or even the simplest just like, you know, a warmer, colder comfort app. Giving that control autopilot and then providing that human comfort-based control. So at the core of it, because it's physics-based, we're controlling not around just air temperature, we're actually controlling around comfort. And that can be human comfort, the building's comfort, you know, the, the building science of the building. Can be a, a process control comfort. You know, maybe you have a carbon fiber layup line that has to have certain comfort dimensions of the carbon fiber in terms of you know temperature and humidity in these boundaries. And then you know this automatic analysis that comes out of it, not just the what of regular analytics, but the analysis, right? Like telling you what happened and why it happened and what was the lineup of things. And then ending up with you know, with a single click, you know, you can add it to an optional cloud where you can see all your buildings in a portfolio and be able to navigate and manage like all your different uh, issues and do cross portfolio insights and so forth. So it's a really different workflow than today's workflow, but follows what is really the business workflow of automation. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking us through that. I just took notes and I have this list of all the things that we spend all of our time on right now that you just checked through. And next to the list I have done, 90% done, automated, included, automated, optional, done. <laughs> so I'll lay all that out for everyone in the show notes, show everyone my notes basically. But one thing I wanted to key in on that was on one of those slides that you briefly mentioned is networking and security. So past couple of newsletters, I've mentioned a couple of tools that people are finding helpful to create remote access due to this time we're all in where we're all working from home. So you mentioned that there are built-in switches and VPN tunnels, it sounds like, already built into the system, which is very novel. Right. So basically all of PassiveLogic's controllers have their own networking. We're all IP-based networking. It can either go wired or wireless or both. And so the, our high controllers, they have four Ethernet jacks in the back. And this is all spanning tree networking, meaning that you can do daisy chains, you can do full loops, you can do whatever kind of crazy topology you want, and it will figure it out. And so in part of that all-in-one experience, it's not just about like, how do you make this automation process better, but the IT process, if we're going to democratize this to a broader audience, we need this just, you, know, you just hook everything together and it will work out the details. That has a few interesting side effects, which is first, it controls its own private network. So you're no longer intermixing with the building's IT infrastructure, which means you have a more secure infrastructure by default. It also means that it becomes its own private umbrella for all of these IoT and smart sensor devices that are right now sometimes struggling to get into a building's network and get past the IT department. We not only enable a marketplace for those I IoT devices to get into the building's design because you've got this whole tool palette of all the different sensors you can drag and drop and then it connects you up with the providers of those. But then it's also going to umbrella those through whatever way that they speak, providing an actionable interface, which is really important because most of those IoT devices, as cool as a lot of them are, they reach up to their own private cloud. And at that point, once you go up to the cloud and then your controller wants to maybe scrape that cloud to bring it back down, it no longer is actionable because you may not be able to count on the connectivity always being there to make real-time decisions. So the fact that it's in building under the umbrella of passive logic, passive logic is making that actionable right in place and then piping that up as a cohesive cloud uh, connection to the passive logic cloud for you know everything that's going on in your building, all your devices, all your sensors, and uh, with a known API. But then from the security point of view, when you install passive logic beyond its private network, it then at whatever point you bridge it out to the outside world, it talks one way. It goes and establishes a prearranged key with the passive logic cloud and talks up. It doesn't establish it down. So it can't, you can't 
hack into it in reverse. It has to say, hey, Passive Logic Cloud, I've got my special key, you know who I am, and it connects that private VPN to the cloud, at, at which point that you can then do you know, all your portfolio management there. So because it's a integrated solution, we get rid of all of this ad hoc security and, and networking stuff that people are trying to manage on their own and, and build a very durable thing at the factory that you can then guarantee that you've got security in every install. Right, right. Okay. How about, so I'm an analytics guy. I've been doing fault detection and monitoring based commissioning for, I don't know, nine years now, something like that, quite a bit. And I actually just had Nick Gajewski from KGS Buildings on last episode. And so what in this new paradigm do all of the analytics nerds like me, what do we do <laughs> with this yeah. new this new technology? Well, that's, I think, where it gets exciting. So if you have a building automation system that understands buildings and it understands systems and equipment, and it understands them beyond the points, you know, that, that we tend to think in. So today you might have a haystack points that you've manually or in some semi-automatic way added to say a pump. And now you're going to have an analytics point that shows pump going on and off. Well, what about all the other variables of the pump, right? Like you, that's the only variable you know of, but the pump is governed by, you know, two dozen different physics variables that are part of how that pump works. And those are not, uh, those are opaque to you. And so the first thing that's interesting about Logic's approach to this deep physics is all those variables are considered so that that pump will have these variables exposed to the analytics user with different quality of, of data you know, for each variable. So as example, a pump's flow can only be certain answers within the rest of the system's operation. And that becomes clear to the physics underneath that is managing how the system is working as a complete subsystem, even where you don't have a flow sensor. Now, depending on how that system works, the quality of data may be 50% or maybe 90%. But as an analytics guy, having access to this much richer pool of data that is not just data, but really turned into information, right? Because it's all pre-labeled. All the physics know what they are. You can you know, compute it and query it. And so for a data analytics or data scientist, it also creates this new world of excitement where you, you will automatically get an order of magnitude deeper, richer data without effort because it just comes as a free side effect of the deep physics control. Right. And I, I think that kind of mirrors my perspective on all of these. You know, you could say on one hand, a lot of the current building optimization jobs that we do, a lot of what we spend our time on right now, a lot of that with current technology and passive logics approach can be automated away. So on one hand, you could say, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to lose our jobs? On the other hand, you could say, we're actually going to enable more capabilities. We're going to, we're going to enable better building performance and remove obstacles to what we're all trying to accomplish anyway, right? Right. So I think there's two sides to that. So it's the first is the question of labor and jobs. There's no doubt that autonomous vehicles are going to put out of work a lot of people. You know, the number one job in America is truck driver. And the technology is largely there to put those jobs out of work. But we think the opposite is true here in buildings because it's about how do we enable a broader audience of people to be doing automation while making the experts more expert. And so we actually see this will engage uh, a labor pool that may be 10x bigger in another 10 years where you have now technicians and electricians and HVAC installers now being able to do automation on a much broader market scale. At the same time, when we look at the experts, so much of our expertise, you know, frankly, is being squandered and just shuttling bits around and, and tagging things manually and doing just like, why aren't we actually seeing how buildings are working? Because we're spending all of our time doing these low level things. So, you know, I think the outcome of that is something interesting when you look at the cloud providers and, and we're probably at a point right now that we're signing two to three cloud providers of services per week. 
into the passive logic cloud and app store infrastructure. And at first blush, you might say, well, gosh, you know, out of the box, passive logics analytics are providing much richer data that even with a lot of hard work, you won't get with a traditional analytics solution. Does that put them out of business? It's like, no. I think what it does is you, you see these companies in, in whatever segment, whether it's fault detection or analytics or district management or energy audits, that what they'll be able to do is let go of the 80% of work that's just weighting them down and focus on the 20% of work where all their value is, which means they get to put five times more effort into the high value part of their business. Great. I'm glad we're seeing the same things. I mean, there's always two different ways to tell the story. Cool. So the other thing I wanted to key in on on that whole story is that at least for the foreseeable future, there's always going to be, it seems like to me, two paradigms, right? There's buildings that installed a new building automation system yesterday that, that wasn't a deep digital twin, right? So there's going to be all these yeah. buildings that have the old technology, essentially, um, yes. even if it was installed yesterday, right? Um, right. And so how do you guys approach buildings that have infrastructure that's not sort of ready to be re uh, replaced yet? Right. I think it's worthwhile like going to the two processes side by side because, yeah. uh, and, and we'll just say at the beginning here, there's multiple ways you can use this, right? So our goal as a company is that you have this huge value chain of players. And some of those people are coming in at the beginning, whether that's an engineering firm or an integrator or an architect or engineer who just wants to make a high performance building that actually works. And they're going to drive new construction. It's like a pure passive logic solution all throughout. And then there's people coming in at the end of the value chain, whether that's a cloud provider of services who today it's too much of a lift to get their projects through the CFO of a company because that $250,000 integration is too high just to get to that $1,000 a month SaaS fee. Or on the retrofit side where you're an energy service company or, or an integrator doing a maintenance job where you're saying, okay, we've got to retrofit and modernize this building. And we work in either way. So in a retrofit scenario, you might just take out the head of those controls and then put in passive logic and talk down to the existing backnet stuff. Uh, or analog and digital, you know, we're uh, very agnostic to, you know, what level. I mean, if you're going back to pneumatics, you're just gonna have to, you're just gonna have to do some, some retrofit <laughs> yeah. work. But, right. but we're, we're pretty agnostic from analog, digital, through the, the different protocols of both the, you know, the common ones like BACnet and Modbus to the, the, the emerging ones in the IoT space, uh, whether that's over DLE mesh or over Wi-Fi. But what we're seeing that is interesting when you look at the difference, so you're going to do a retrofit and you're like, okay, maybe you're going to leave the VAB controllers in, but you're going to put in some modern, you know, uh, head controllers and put in some IT infrastructure. And, and now you have to program sequences for this thing. And now you have to, you know, go through a commissioning process and all these things. Well, gosh, that was just a lot easier to stick in passive logic on top. Let's talk about an even lighter weight case. Say you're just, an analytics company or an energy monitoring company. It seems lighter weight at first to like put in some cloud middleware to aggregate through, you know, some different pipes of your IoT and, and sensor products that you maybe put in the building until you realize that you have to go and label everything, tag everything, put together a schema for it and then get that schema like uh, adapted to your internal systems to describe that building in that scenario. And what we're finding is these cloud providers are looking towards passive logic as a lightweight install that removes what was a lot more software work, even though this hardware component requires something on site, because at the end of the day, you're going to have to do a lot less work if you just you know draw what the building looks like, draw what the systems look like, and let it build its own internal digital twin that it can re-describe to your software. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that. I didn't see that before. That's that's fascinating. So you can, you guys could always install one of your controllers, start off deploying a deep digital twin, and then as certain systems on that old system get replaced, then you would just start replacing that with your stuff. Is that kind of how you see things rolling yeah. out? Yeah. I mean, I 
I'll give you an example. Right now, we have a strategic um, partnership with NVIDIA. And NVIDIA, they are, if people don't know, they're a traditionally a graphics chip company. They make these GPUs. But that turned out to be the perfect platform for AI. So five years ago, NVIDIA was a graphics card manufacturer, graphics chip manufacturer. And today, they're probably, you could easily consider them one of the top five companies driving AI infrastructure. Well, they get this idea that buildings are the next revolution because they've gone through it with vehicles and vehicles are now, they are the core component. They are the engine behind everybody's autonomous vehicle platform. And the CEO said recently, you know, when they called us, they, he said to one of the VPs that, that was in charge of their buildings programs, he said, you know, why is it that I've got this vehicle here that all I have to do is fill it up with gas and it'll drive itself to New York but my $700 million brand new corporate headquarters can barely function, right? It's like crazy. So yeah. they called us and, and we've been talking to them about like, you know, what a rollout would look like. And, and that includes a variety of buildings throughout the world. What is in some cases a deep retrofit of pathologic all the way down to the VAV controller on a new building. Well, that doesn't make sense. Let's leave all that stuff in place and just replace the top end of the control system and, and talk to the existing backend infrastructure. And then a new construction, it's just, you know, new passive logic throughout. And so I think you can think in all of those different models for, you know, what is, what is the right approach, whether it's pro progressive install or a deep install or, you know, kind of this mixed model where you'll lose a little bit, you'll lose, the endpoint commissioning, you know, all the way to the bottom of the wire, but you won't lose the commissioning of the system as a whole. We'll still be able to interact with that. Right. Okay, cool. Well, as we get towards the end of our hour here, I, I want to circle back on iPhones, but first I had circled on my notes here to ask you about small buildings. And so, I mean, I've heard you talk about it before on other, in other places, small buildings are a very underserved automation market. Can you guys talk about how you're attacking that? Yeah, so I think what we've seen in previous attempts at this market was we already have too complex of a model for our big buildings. It takes a lot of expertise to drive and they're not that good, right? Like, I mean, that's the problem. That's why we're all struggling. And when you decide that you're going to keep that as a high value market, and then come out with a small commercial product that takes something that was not very capable or good in the first place is too complex to use and pull out the features where you didn't make it any easier to use and you just made it worse, right? And I think, you know, as a marketplace, everybody feels these are just not compelling products. So we felt at Passive Logic, our goal is not to just like go head on with the big four, but to enable that small to mid-sized market, which by the way, for everybody is you go to talk to the customers, you talk to installers, you talk to HVAC guys. It's not like the demand's not there. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants something in that space. The problem was it wasn't friendly enough to use or cost-effectively enough to use. So Passive first solved the democratization problem, you enable the average HVAC installer to do this stuff. And then we built a business model that doesn't require you to go through three weeks of hoops before you figure out the price. We have a pricing must scale model that like really enables a $1,500 install up to your $1.5 million installs. And it, and it really scales with the size you're building, the number of zones, the number of controllers. And so, you know, our controllers can, you can get a controller in a zone for around 1500 bucks uh, in terms of the zone license and, you know, do a small coffee shop. And that becomes more friendly and viable and easier to install than even, you know, a thermostat and zone controlling type approach. So, you know, I think it's technology that enables new business models. Yeah. I mean, as an energy engineer, we'd always run into clients with large portfolios of small buildings and the economics were always difficult when, like you're saying, there was no compelling products to, to get to where there was a good enough payback essentially right i mean going back to your iphone it's not like you know you got the engineer's iphone and then the blue collar worker got the blue collar iphone and the executive got the executive iphone everybody gets the same iphone right like there's no like right. yeah, we're, we're, we're gonna like dumb it down for you you know like that that's the <laughs> ridiculous notion in 2020 everybody should get the same 
features, they all have, we all have the same energy efficiency needs, the same operational needs, no matter how big your building is. Totally. I love that. Okay. So back on the iPhone, but the app store component, you, you took us through a little bit of your vision there and your partner ecosystem is the iPhone for buildings with the app store for buildings. Is that an appropriate analogy for passive logic? It is the appropriate analogy. And, and I think, you know, one thing that people should understand about that, other than this sort of glib, like top level thing is, honestly, it's far more compelling in our market than it ever was in the consumer market. And uh, we talked a little bit about that. Like, if you take an app store from a 15 minute software install to a one second click, that's not as compelling as taking it from a $100,000 integration cost to a one second click. That's a lot more compelling. <laughs> Right. So, right. But, but the, the thing that's missing and what, uh, what I think often people don't uh, realize, and it, we'll, we talk a little bit about the digital twin standard. So when you have a physics based controller, just the setup of that controller generates this digital twin inside that controller for its own operational purpose. Well, that digital twin description of your building has far more use cases than just our own controller. And one of those use cases becomes the cloud or other applications, whether it's cloud or mobile applications. And what's been missing in this marketplace is there's been no platform for buildings, right? You can buy uh, a JSON or, or similar types of things from different manufacturers, but it's more akin to a Linux kernel than it is to the iPhone iOS with these high level APIs. So the first thing it enables in this digital twin standard, which by the way, we, we have an investment from the Department of Energy, where we're working on making this an open standard, but it has multiple use cases. Now, most people here are probably familiar with things like Haystack and Brick. Haystack is tags. That means that a variable in a system has a name. Brick provides structure to those tags to say, well, these are how things are arranged in the system, the topology, but that's still only maybe 15% of the world that you need to describe what's going on in a building, right? You have the building and the structure and the floors and the zones and the walls and the assemblies, and people walk around and all these things. And, and that deep, you know, ontology, that deep variable space of all of the things that data scientists want. Passive logic enables a singular API that as a app application or strategic partner, you can program to that API once, and then you will be able to walk that API consistently in the same way for every single building after. And that's one of the things that's really been missing in buildings is a one way to describe buildings in a deep and rich way that's, that describes everything that's going on there. And that enables first the application market and, and the cloud services and, and the mobile market for prop tech and energy tech and construction tech, but it also enables some new opportunities in the marketplace, which is also part of what our DOE agreement's about, is how do you enable the future of grids? How do you enable the future of smart cities where buildings as the biggest component of energy use um, can I start acting in a peer-to-peer -peer way and talking back and forth with utilities and being like, hey, this is what my demand and supply will be over the next 12 hours and we can all guarantee what everybody is saying is accurate. Nobody can in-run the system. And that's going to be a really key component. You can't have smart cities, you can't have smart grids unless you have smart buildings that can act as agents on behalf of their owners and be able to communicate in a uh, reliable and provable way. And so that's the, the more distant future, like, enablement uh, of what digital twin, um, physics-based digital twins enable. Great, yeah, and, and several of my projects at NREL are working on these sorts of grid interactive type of projects. So yeah, that's, that's fascinating, that's awesome. So I have to ask you, and I don't know if you got the chance to listen to episode one of the Nexus podcast, but I had Nicholas Wern on, and it sounds like you visited Nicholas in Sweden a couple months back and help, maybe help him move a couch. Yep, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> he thought that was funny to get uh, get me moving a couch for him that he can take a picture and see a past logic with my couch. <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, I mean, he made sure to, 
to tell me that you were a really nice guy. So, uh, <laughs> well, so I have to ask you about something he said on the podcast, and this is his model, and I hope I'm quoting him correctly. Uh, I'm sure he'll tell me if I'm if I'm not. But um, three stages of smart building technology, and this relates to these different types of platforms, basically. So we have. Um, his first level is old technology. So it's basically everything that we've been talking about and how it doesn't work. Um, the second level is new. In other words, um, what can you enable with new technology? And he's actually putting you guys in the second level. And I hope I'm not stirring up a bunch of stuff here. <laughs> but he's <laughs> yeah. basically saying that there's a third level, which would be more open than you guys are. So I think what he's right. saying is that when you guys are in a building, you have to use passive logic hardware. So can you sort of sure. for everyone respond to his question? Yeah, there? I think I think that's a, a, a important question. And I think, you know, for guys like Nicholas who are saying, well, what's happening in the market and how do I reconcile it all? Here's the problem that I see. And we don't have to make stuff. We can just look at history. So you know, Linux is probably the the one single thing that we can all point to as the most successful open source project. And for over a decade, no, two decades now, there's been a joke in the industry about this year will finally be the year of the Linux desktop. And of course, it's not right. And and there's it's not anywhere in sight in the future, and probably never will be because we've seen a bifurcation of where open source has become successful and where new technologies have developed for what that future path looks like. And, and so open source has become successful in one domain, which is the, the tools that programmers use to build other tools where the core value is. So we don't have to go reinvent the kernel again because you know we could just use Linux. You don't care at the end of the day if your iPhone runs off of Apple's mock kernel or the Windows kernel or the Linux kernel, it doesn't really affect you. It's a very low level piece in the year 2020. So that tells you something uh, about the open model. It is a lagging market of technology. It's where 10 to 20 years out, the technology settle out as being commodity. Right, that's where open source is. So, so what we're seeing, there's a bunch of people in the automation market saying, well, we need this open source op operating system to replace Tritium, we need open source this and that. At the end of the day, those ideas, because it takes a crap load of effort and work and investment to do the new things, they don't settle out into the open market until they're commodities. And so by nature, the innovations that will change our world will not be in the open source space. You know, it's a very communitarian, uh, maybe Swedish ideal of, uh, of, of Nicholas's, <laughs> but, but that's just the way it works, right? I can't raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars to then give away all the key pieces that made that valuable. But I can then decide, well, where are the places that we can collaborate that, that make it matter? And that, like the iPhone, is, you know, there's millions of applications that's open for people to build their own applications on top of. There's the connectivity, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, right, on your phone. Well, we have BACnet and we have all these other things. That's what's important to make sure that we have industry standards so that then people can make these domains of innovation where that you will just have things go orders of magnitude faster and it's not just in terms of where the, the money is coming from and how innovation happens, but it's it's once you get 10 people in the room and you start negotiating around what the look of BACnet should be, right? Like we've seen that alone takes decades and, and that's not the place to innovate, right? The, the place to innovate is getting a group of people to, to come up with, you know, a, a commodity product. So, I, I think that, and we're going to see that all over. And we do see that. We see that in the IoT space, smart sensor space. Again, you're not going to have the coolest, newest sensors that are like an open platform. They're going to be, you know, the latest technology that people work hard on. And that's just the history of technology. And that will be the future of technology. Fair enough. Yeah. I And the way I understand what you're saying is that this model helps things move faster for everyone. If I were to summarize it all up. Yeah, it passes like not alone in that. There's a lot of people who are doing innovative stuff out there and they will move orders of magnitude faster than the general market or the general market 
you know, working together in, in working groups. <laughs> and, and so you, we have to decide where, where are the places we want innovation and where are the places that we want cooperation. And it turns out, I think you can see in the consumer space, you can see in, in our space that, you know, Tritium today has probably been one of the more successful platforms and it's sold in a more open way. That doesn't make it open, right? Tritium's uh, proprietary software, but that's pushed further than the general market of control and Passologic we think commoditizes it even further. And that's the democratization. Linux today, 25 years in, nobody would claim is a democratizing force. In fact, only a few very expert people can even wield it. So I think that's often the misunderstanding of open source. Like we can make things open source and obscure and have fewer and fewer people use it. Or we can go build things that everybody can use and we can share amongst us programmers the open source components that we think keep there from being industry overlap. Got it. So, okay. So tell me about your, your, as we wrap things up here, your launch. So what's the roadmap? When's the product going to be available? When will I see passive logic in yeah. my next energy audit? <laughs> so we've been in um, private beta for the last couple of years and we've been building our go-to-market product. Uh, first products rolled off the factory lines just a month ago. We will be working with our network of partners to deliver to first uh, some of our strategic partners later this year. And probably for your general audience, they'll probably be more like this time next year. Got it. Cool. All right. Well, as we wrap up, is there any, anything else you wanted to say to the folks? No, I think this was a, a fun conversation and, and uh, you know, happy at some point that we can maybe go deeper on one of these subjects. It's, uh, I know that you have some interests around the digital twins and how the deep physics works and, and we can get you geek here on another episode. I'd love to. Yeah. Well, signing off for now, I guess. So thanks, Troy. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, please subscribe at nexus.substack.com. You can find show notes for this conversation there as well. As always, please reach out on LinkedIn with any thoughts on this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day.